Greetings, this is Peter Diager, and you're about to listen to one of the interviews in the podcast series Y2K and Autobiography. But you're just listening to the audio. The real fun is in the video. You can find the video at this location, www.vimeo.com slash technobility slash bonus, B-O-N-U-S. That long, complicated word, technobility, is spelled T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y. So, enjoy the audio or the video if you prefer. And now I'll shut up and you can listen to the podcast, Y2K and Autobiography. Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager, and have I got a treat for you today. I've been doing a series of interviews with people who were connected with Y2K all part of the Y2K and Autobiography podcast. And I've spoken to a wide variety of people, people who were programmers, people who were, who were journalists. But I thought I would do something a little bit different with this one. I wanted to speak to an artist, someone who looks at the world a little bit differently than anybody, everybody else. Now, this person wasn't involved in Y2K, not by a long shot, but I know for various reasons he was watching it closely. My guest today is Robert J. Sawyer, science fiction writer, Hugo and Nebula Award. It doesn't get any better than that. And I am delighted to have him here today, as you maybe can tell from the tone of my voice. Rob, introduce yourself a little bit and then give me some of your prehistory. In other words, before you started writing and created your own bit of fame in the world, what formed you? Parents input books you read, the education you had, where you grew up, off you go. Who are you? Well, without, you know, you and I were preparing this in advance, it's very interesting that you chose the term prehistory because my childhood passion, starting at about the age of three, was paleontology, dinosaurs in particular, but all kinds of fossils, uh, early forms of human life, hominids and so forth. And my father used to read books to me uh, before I would go to bed. And he would get, he taught at the University of Toronto and he would go special order kids books about dinosaurs from this academic bookstore. Uh, and they were happy to accommodate him. So my interest was to be a scientist, a paleontologist. I grew up in Toronto. I attended the Saturday Morning Club at the Royal Ontario Museum, which is there. Uh, it's exactly what it says. It's a club for kids. You go on Saturday mornings, you go behind the scenes with the curators and not just into the galleries, but into the labs and the specimen storage facilities. And I was immersed in that. And it was right up to my last year of high school, which, as you'll remember, as somebody who also lives in Ontario, Canada, we, unique amongst all jurisdictions on the planet, had a grade 13, a 13th year of high school, a 13th year of public school before university. And by the time I'd finished grade 13, my appetite for another decade of school, which is what it would have taken, to get that PhD in paleontology that I would have needed to eventually work at the Royal Ontario Museum, the appetite just wasn't there, Peter. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I always thought I would write science fiction as a hobby. I so much enjoyed science fiction on television. I'm part of that generation. 
the first generation to come to the field of science fiction through television rather than through pulp magazines. Now, later, I went back and discovered the literary stuff, uh, the classics going right back to Mary Shelley and, of course, Vern Wells, um, uh, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. But my initial bite of the apple was Star Trek and the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey that my dad, again, very influential, took me to see in 1968. I was eight years old. And because I was born in 1960, you with a zero, even at eight, the math is easy. I was able to, oh, in 2001, I'm 41, I'll be 41. There's dad sitting next to me. Wait a minute, dad is 40 zero. He was a little bit older than most having a kid because he'd gotten a PhD. He'd done that path that I thought about emulating. When I'm about dad's age, no, sorry, my dad was 43 because he went to the math wrong. When I'm not even dad's age, this is my world. Space travel, interplanetary voyages, hibernation, artificial intelligence, cities on the moon. What a great way to spend my life thinking about that kind of reality. That's kind of the evolution of Rob Sawyer from his lobe fin beginnings to his brain in the jar that you know and love today. Well, I knew that paleontology fit into it because the first three books of yours that I read back in the day were far as the Quintaglio trilogy. And I love any book that's in science fiction where there are no humans, where it's just aliens. But these weren't that alien. They were, in a way, the same dinosaurs we had. Well, sort of. So Exactly. And it's funny you should say that because, you know, writers can be anybody, right? not just writers, anybody can be devastated by an unfortunate comment. And early in my writing career, somebody said, and nobody has said it for decades since, Peter, but early on, before I got published, you don't do characters, human characters very well. And I thought, oh, all right, I better write a book with none of them. Hence, Farseer and its two sequels. But my passion, as I'd already mentioned to you, was paleontology. And the biggest what if of all in paleontology has always been, what if the dinosaurs did not go extinct? What if they weren't wiped out by that asteroid that hit on the shore of uh, the Gulf of Mexico 65 million years ago? What if they'd been able to continue evolving? And in the context of this, these three novels, I have benevolent aliens transplanting dinosaurs to another world prior to what they knew was going to be the asteroid impact, and then flash forwarding to their equivalent of the Renaissance and meeting their Galileo or Copernicus equivalent. And uh, those books, you know, you mentioned back in the day, the first one came out in 1992, the second one, Fossil Hunter, 1993, and the final one, Foreigner, in 1994, they're more than a quarter of a century old, those books. And that's when we met, because I looked in the back of the uh, Foreigner one, and I remember seeing that it mentioned where you lived. So I was on an audacious reader, so I phoned you up and said, you want to get together for coffee? And we ended up in a place that's now extinct, uh, Britnell's. Uh, yeah. Many, many years ago. Now, the glorious Canadian, the glorious Toronto Independent Bookshop, for those yes. who don't know. Yes, exactly. Well, usually, I, this is part of the interview where I talk about your background, but obviously, I'm 
I was putting up your books. And I said, I can't call it background. There's, it's book ground. It was just the thing that came <laughs> in my mind. You have dozens of books. So here's the question. What drives you as a writer? I mean, obviously, you write to, to, to feed yourself. That's what every writer does. But once you've gotten beyond that, maybe even before it for some, there's something else driving you. What are you attempting to do in your books? Exactly. Uh, I want to change the world. It sounds grandiose. Uh, it sounds insane. But I want to change the world. Um, I use that word grandiose so rarely I didn't even pronounce it right the first time, just so that people won't think I'm a complete megalomaniac. But I grew up with Star Trek, the original Star Trek. And I, you know, my mother's an American, my father's a Canadian. I grew up in Toronto. But that meant that we were hugely conscious of the civil rights struggle going on in the United States during the 1960s. Our evening newscast was Walter Cronkite because my mother wanted to see what was going on back at home. And uh, I was hugely conscious of, uh, of um, the fear of nuclear war in the 1960s and of course of the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Now I had some favorite shows in the 1960s that were in first run. One was Get Smart. Get Smart was set in Washington, D.C. That's where Control Headquarters is. It was about an agent for the federal government in Washington, D.C. Did they talk on that show about Vietnam? Did they ever explore racial inequality? Did they ever once raise the specter of looming nuclear annihilation? No. Star Trek was doing that with masks, disguises, metaphors, but even as a kid, even a kid, maybe the network censor was too dumb to get them, but a kid could see right through to what they were actually talking about. And for me, when people say, the, the, you know, you want to have Dems fighting words for me, say, oh, science fiction, that's just escapist kid stuff. It's not escapist at all. It's a way of interrogating our reality and getting beyond the simple labels, you know, you and I are Canadians. We have truth and advertising here in Canada. Our Liberal Party is called the Liberal Party. Our Conservative Party, guess what? It's the Conservative Party. We don't make any disguises about who's who in the states. Democrats and Republicans uh, fit the same roles, but you have to dig a bit and ask yourself what was before or after they switch sides on so many issues to figure out what you're referring to in the Americas, in the United States. But in Canada, we have people who, liberals who won't talk to conservatives, conservatives won't talk to liberals, the states, Democrats who won't talk to Republicans and so forth. Science fiction going right back to H.G. Wells, who was one of the first authors I discovered in print, was about getting beyond the labels that prevent people from communicating. He wanted to talk in War of the Worlds about the evils of British colonialism. He wanted to talk in the time machine about the evils of the British class structure. But if he had said, here is Wells, well-known historian, by the way, during most of his lifetime, pontificating about the evils of either of those things, the books would have dropped like bricks. They would have sold nothing. Instead, he said, let me tell you what appears to be escapism but will leave you thinking for the rest of your life. That's what drew me to science fiction.
Yeah, I read mysteries, I've read westerns, I've read all types of genres. But the one that drives my thinking has always been science fiction. It's never about the rockets. Well, there are some that is just about the rockets, but for the most part, science fiction is about something much deeper. And it's, like you said, packaged in a way that is palatable for, for most people. But it's, it's not about the science. It's how people interact with science. That's right. In fact, the great tragedy, you know, we'd made enormous progress. We, I mean, my predecessors in the science fiction field. Because, you know, starting with Forbidden Planet, a film from the 1950s, and also the original The Day the Earth Stood Still, science fiction moved from being B-movies and, and serials to being A-list movies. And then we got, in 1968, two of the greatest science fiction films of all time, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes. And suddenly science fic oh it, you know academics were saying and people who had never seen any science oh well that has some meat to it that's worth chewing over there's some issues here and then george lucas came along and blew it all out of the water with his escapist fair pure and simple star wars which is apolitical uninteresting in terms of any intellectual engagement but enormously fun eye candy. And what his vision of science fiction was became synonymous with what all science fiction is in most people's minds to the point when I, where I or you or anybody else says, well, what about 1984? Well, that's a classic. It's not science fiction. Brave New World? No, no, that's literature, not science fiction. Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale? No, 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 no. That's canlit, as we say in Canada, Canadian literature. But even no. she says it's not science fiction. Well, you know, okay, I'll tell you my one of my greatest moments in life. The Toronto Public Library used to give an award called the Toronto uh, Public Library Loves uh, Celebrates Reading Award, Celebrates Reading Award, which was given to the author whose books in the judgment of the library board uh, had given the most pleasure to their patrons in a given year. Right. And one of the tricks of that award is the incumbent had to present it to the new laureate. I was the new laureate. Margaret Atwood was the incumbent. And Margaret said, I just want to say how happy I am to see this going to a science fiction writer. And I said, Margaret, I just want to say how happy I am to be getting it from a science fiction writer. This was a black tie banquet at the Royal York, and it, my line brought the house down. Because everybody, and even Margaret, who was very gracious about it, everybody recognizes that uh, what she is doing is obfuscation. You can get a Canada Council grant if you say you're writing speculative literature. Or you can get tenure at a university if you say that's your field of study. You can't get either if you say you're writing science fiction or researching science fiction. Okay. It's <laughs> a good, good comeback, though. Very good comeback. Thank you. <laughs> Snappy answers to stupid questions. Mad Magazine, also a formative part of my background. Very good. Let's shift a little bit away from science fiction just for a second and start moving towards the technology because this is going to be a discussion about Y2K. I know a little bit about your background. Now, in a world of new, where new and shiny seems to rule everything with respect to technology, what's your guiding light 
with respect to technology and refer to the thing that I'm alluding to. Sure. So I am what is called a creative writer. That means that I have a notion, the most fleeting of thoughts or images in my brain, and only a very tiny window between when that occurs to me and when the synaptic connections decay and the thought is lost. I need the most efficient, least complex way of getting what's in my head into the word processing file when I'm writing my books. I use still, and I will say also, George R. R. Martin uses still, and Arthur C. Clarke used until the day he died. WordStar, WordStar for DOS, one of the original word processors, and in its day, the market leader before it was supplanted by WordPerfect, and then WordPerfect was supplanted by Word. There is a world of difference in how long it takes me to get a thought out of my head into the document in WordStar versus Word. Why would that be? One word processor's the same as the other. No, it's not. WordStar was designed for touch typists. It dates back to the era where the only things you could count on being on a keyboard in a standard position or present at all were the 26 alphabetic keys, the 10 numeric keys, a handful of punctuation keys, and a control key. You might not have a tab key. You might not even have an enter key. You very frequently didn't have cursor keys. You had no such thing as function keys, but you had those keys. You didn't have a mouse. They weren't even available when WordStar came out. They hadn't been invented at, at uh, Park at the Palo Alto Research Laboratory. Yeah. Um, we had a keyboard that required you to keep your hand on the home typing row in order to type, and guess what? To do the exact same thing in order to edit. There's no modality in WordStar between creating and revising. Whereas the moment I wanted to start revising something, even if it's just a typo, what do I have to do in Word? Well, take my hand off the home typing row, Find wherever on this particular keyboard, Backspace or Dell happens to be located, or even worse, go and grab a mouse and start moving a different cursor, not get the insertion point and the mouse cursor, and try before I've lost the train of thought to make the change I want to make, and then reorient my entire way of thinking back into composition and away from editing. It is an enormously bad design from the user experience point of view. But Microsoft knew that writers are traditionally poor and there are thousands of them in North America. And secretaries are employed in their hundreds of thousands by Fortune 500s, which was the bigger marketplace. Secretaries who have zero interest in creative composition, in most cases, they are turning dictation into text or what have you. And most secretaries are very good typists who rarely make mistakes in typing, whereas most writers quite often are bad typists and indeed may be dyslexic. That's very commonly correlated with being a creative writer. And so are constantly making errors. So WordStar for DOS serves my needs 
better than any tool that has come along. WordStar for DOS, the version I used last updated in 1992, 28 years ago. Nothing has come along in the quarter of a century plus since that is remotely as efficient for what I do for a living. You see, you have this unreasonable approach to technology. You have a set of goals in mind, and you find the technology that meets those goals, and you don't care about anything else. Do you know how weird you are? <laughs> I do know that. I absolutely <laughs> know that. It's incredible how many people, uh, you know, and, and not, not to completely diss Microsoft, there are enormous powers that Word is capable of doing, things that it can do or Excel or PowerPoint or, you know, any of those applications. The average user has no clue about most of the convenience features that are available in the software they use every single day. So yeah, I am all about whenever I, uh, you know, I use a very small number of programs, but I'm a power user of every single one of them. There's not a trick or a shortcut or a time saver that I don't know about and employ every time I use the, that program when appropriate. Uh, whereas for most users, oh, you mean there was a way to do that from the keyboard? I didn't have to. Pull down a menu, open a submenu, select a dialog box, click a radio button, and then go back to the keyboard. I could have done it with control whatever. Oh, I didn't know that. And so many people don't. And it cuts their productivity down enormously. We talk all the time about technology. You know, the biggest problem with technology, right now I've got three screens in front of me. Sure, one of them has Peter de Jager's uh, Y2K, the Longview uh, video podcast on it. But another one has Wikipedia and a third one has my word processor. And oh, behold, there's my iPad with my instant message. We talk about as if the distractions of multiple input streams are the big impediment to getting things done. The real distraction is nobody anymore does what used to be the default comeback from tech support, RTFM, read <laughs> the effing manual. It's all there. And most people just want to sit down and say, oh, well, if I do this, it kind of sort of accomplishes what I want. If I backspace 18 times instead of learning how to delete a backwards a word at a time or a line at a time, that's good enough for me. For years, I used to use the IBM personal editor as my writing tool. Yes. And I used it simply because of the following features. The only thing I needed to do for the work that I was doing at the time, which were all articles less than 1,000 words in length, I needed to be able to center a line of text. That's my mm -hmm. title. I need to start a new paragraph. That's it. Center a line of text and write a, start a new paragraph. That's all I did. That's the only features I used. 100%. Oh, and, say, and, and the wrote, thing is, oh, sorry, go ahead. I wrote hundreds of articles with that. And I didn't need Word or anything else because I knew exactly what I needed to do. And it was simple. And every one of those articles you can still open today because it was a plain ASCII text yep. file. Every one of them. Yep. WordStar, which was just slightly polluted ASCII, um, my, you know, I, I can open a file. I started using WordStar in 1983. 
So that is 37 years ago, if I do the math right, as we speak in 2020. I can open the very first file. I remember what it was, actually. I wrote a year in review summary of the year in science fiction for the newsletter of BACA, the science fiction bookstore in Toronto. Very first document. I thought, I'll learn how to do everything. I'll learn how to format, you know, a title in italics and blah, blah, blah. I'll learn how to do all that by tackling this little document. I can open it today flawlessly. And any file viewer that can show you ASCII text can still show it flawlessly, or at least so that you can extract the text easily. DOC, the original doc format, obsolete. Try to open one of those in a, a modern version of Word, you get compatibility mode, right? And heaven help you if you've got Multimate files or even WordPerfect files or, uh, you know, any number of now wholly obsolete ways of storing your work. Let's start bringing two things together here. Here's a general question. I'm sure you've been asked this one before. What role does science fiction play in helping us understand ourselves and the societies we've built for ourselves? It's a crucial role, and it's one fulfilled by nobody else, because the science fiction writer is not beholden to anybody but the reader, whereas the researcher is beholden to whoever is funding their research, whether even it's a university department, or if it's a pharmaceutical company, or a corporation they work for, they are told, make it work. And they're told, publish the positive results. And so we have a science-based uh, society that is skewed towards a distorted view of reality. And ironically, science fiction comes in and says, you know, our job isn't to be cheerleaders for science. Our job is not to be naysayers or hecklers of science. Our job is to do a measured assessment of science, to look not just for the first order effects, but the second and third order effects. The classic example predates me being born by decades is this. Anybody at the turn of the 20th century could have predicted powered flight, the airplane, but only a science fiction writer would have predicted frequent flyer miles and airport lounges. The second and third order effects, where does this go? What does it mean? Isaac Asimov, his own definition of science fiction, is brilliant because in this context, because it has that keyword societies in it. Science fiction is not fiction about science, nor is it a fictional science made up crap. It is about the responses of human beings in their societies to changes in the level of science and technology. My friend William Gibson, the great father of, uh, of the cyber uh, punk movement, a coiner of the word cyberspace, and author of Neuromancer, puts it very succinctly. The job of the science fiction writer is to be profoundly ambivalent about changes in science and technology. So everybody is talking right now, you and I are doing this, of course, as you have done it for some time, this blog by, by uh, remote control, you're one place and I'm another place, but everybody is doing Zoom meetings and social distancing and all of that uh, and saying, oh my God, how do we deal with this? And we say, oh, um, you know, we were talking about virtual reality and doing things by telepresence 
30, 40, 50 years ago. This is taking no science fiction reader by surprise. And the crime is that it takes policymakers by surprise because they refuse to look at a wide, diverse, and accessible body of literature that has tackled virtually every societal problem that faces us today, not just the pandemic, but also the rights of minorities. Also, uh, transgenderism, which is a big issue right now in society, in the Supreme Court today in the United States, as you and I speak, turned in a ruling on an only six to three basis. It should have been, of course, uh, unanimous saying, yeah, businesses can't discriminate against trans employees based on their sexual or gender uh, preference. Um, all of this, Ursula K. Le Guin was talking about half a century ago. James Allen Gardner, fine Canadian science fiction writer, was talking about 20 years ago. Star Trek, the original series, the final episode is about transgenderism. Turnabout Intruder, where a woman appropriates Kirk's man's man, male body and vice versa. We've been dealing with this forever. And policymakers say, oh, we're gobsmacked. We don't know what to do. Who knew that these were going to be the issues that face society? Well, science fiction readers and writers now. And sometimes you do it effortlessly. Uh, That sounds wrong. There's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into thinking about first and second order effects. Give me an example from your own work. This is stuck in my mind for a long, long time, and you're seeing it play out daily on the news now. In fact, it is driving what's going on in the States right now Oh, and around the world. In Wake, Watch, and Wonder, you have this phenomenally powerful scene where you're, everybody in a crowd is picking up their camera to report something, to cover it, to capture the moment. And if you look to the TV, it's camera, it's film by citizens that is driving a, a revolution that's happening. Uh, yes, know. and and thank you. Yeah, I certainly in 2009 I, in Wake, I talked about that. In 2002 in Hominids, I had the alibi archives, everybody life logging everything they did. So when, you know, the the excrement hit the ventilator, you would be able to exonerate yourself. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I wasn't there. Instead right. of having the mob justice we enjoy and enjoy in scare quotes online today. But I'll tell you where it came from. In the 90s, I and some other science fiction writers uh, were invited by the Skunk Works at Eastman Kodak. They said, here's the deal. You come in, we'll give you two of our facilities. You blue sky with our best researchers about the future of image products. Because we know that, you know, the traditional film camera, th- we, we know we're in trouble here. Come in, talk to us. We'll feed you. You can keep any ideas that you come up with. We might exploit your ideas. Uh, we'll have fun. And I thought, okay, they really should be paying me $10,000, but nonetheless, I went in. And I said, the first thing I said when we sat down, here's the problem with your whole business model. Your whole business model at the time was based on the slogan, that's a Kodak moment. Right. The problem is you don't know it's a Kodak moment until the moment is passed. You may not have your camera with you. If you do have it with you, it's in, your, it's in a bag. Oh, speaking of technological difficulties, I am just going to uh, uh, just get rid of that right there. 
that that was the theme to Jerry Anderson's UFO as the ringtone on my iPhone. Um, I said, you don't know it's a Kodak moment, right? Until it's too late. What you need to get into is in the business of life logging of what we now call uh, body cams, right? I said this back in around, I don't know, it was 94 or something. Well, we all know where Eastman Kodak is today. They said, oh, that's an interesting idea and never developed it. But it was going to be, and I knew it was going to be, a sea change. Cameras, as soon as we got charged coupled devices, cameras that don't depend on film and cameras that don't require a long lens length to get a decent photo, which is charge coupled devices, CCDs, invented for uh, optical astronomy, but are what are used in all of our, uh, our digital cameras now. Uh, as soon as those became a reality, I knew that the whole world would be changed by ubiquitous, constant photographing and recording, video recording of every significant event. Yeah, and it is driving the world right now. Uh, every, as far as I'm concerned, everybody should be wearing a body cam. It's for your own, as I said, for alibi, it's for your own best interest, right? These cops who, you know, we now have a question right now, one of the cases we're looking that that just went down this past weekend was a guy, you know, an African-American man killed by a white cop as he ran away from um, being put in cuffs at a Wendy's. And the cop says he, he turned a device on me and I thought, I was in deadly danger with the device at worst was a taser, which definitionally is not supposed to be a deadly weapon. Uh, but the cop didn't have a body cam to show his perspective on the scene. He's been fired. The chief of police has stepped down. Uh, it would have behooved him. These cops who think that anonymity is their friend covering their badge numbers, not wearing their body cams carefully setting their coffee cup in front of the dash cam, right? So nothing is filmed. Are their own worst enemies? Because if they are acting righteously, nobody, we understand that black men, white men, women, people of all colors, ages, and sizes sometimes do fall so violently afoul of societal norms that the only choice a peace officer has is the use of lethal force. If you are entrusted with lethal force and you are not a maniac, you should be embracing wholeheartedly the notion that having a complete exculpatory record of your actions is in your best interest. Agreed. We've explored your your background, your love of technology, science fiction, and then along comes Y2K. When you first heard of it, what were your initial thoughts? And how did those evolve over time as the story began to be fleshed out? Yes. Now, of course, we're talking 20 years on here. Um, and you were instrumental in warning the year, the world. When was uh, uh, your famous article? What year was that? 1993. First one was in early 1993. And then the one that got people's attention was in September of 1993. I believe that I first encountered this notion that two date years were going to be a problem. Uh, Actually, in one of Arthur C. Clarke's novels, I think it was The Ghost of the The Grand Grand Banks. Banks. Yep. Right? Oh, so I do remember correctly. Good. Which is, of course, uh, his what about uh, trying to raise the Titanic, um, that being the ghost of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Um, 
but uh, he, he floated this notion and said, you know, it's going to be a headache. And one of the things, and it, it resonated with me partly because I admired Clark. He's my favorite science fiction writer. But my parents always used to do something, and I adopted the habit when I started doing it. When they sent out Christmas cards, they always wrote the year on them. Just at the bottom, it would say, you know, my parents' names were Jack and Virginia. So Jack and Virginia, 1967 on the Christmas card. And I, why, right? That's obviously a Christmas card. We know what season it's for. So you've never had to clear out a parent or a grandparent's house and tried to make sense of the ephemera of a life, photographs that are undated and have no indication of who they are of, cards and letters that you have no idea where they came from. For something as trivial as a Christmas card, they said you have to have an unambiguous date associated with that. And when Clark said that, I just said immediately, yeah, he's right, that's right, yeah, this is gonna be a problem. And to this day, it stuns me, Peter, we're 20 years into the next century, or 19, depending on how you care to yep. define it. And people have gone back to routinely writing two-digit years. So I get emails that say things like, uh, or, or files that have dates on it that are, you know, 1806-17. Well, is that from 2018 on June 17th? Or is it from 2017? You know, it, it, we learned nothing. And you and your colleagues and everybody who took it seriously must feel as so many of we, uh, the same way so many of us science fiction writers do. We warned you, we told you, <laughs> we taught you a lesson and you still haven't gotten it. We are Cassandras, you and me, that's what we share in common. Prophetesses or prophets whose absolutely correct pronouncements are just laughed off and ignored by the masses. And it pains me greatly for all the obvious reasons every time I see a two-digit year. I just absolutely my entire life was a waste. <laughs> well, you know, and the thing is, your life, if you get your biblical three score and 10, or even the 90 that a lot of people are getting these days, you know, is getting near the end, as is mine, if we don't get life prolongation in this century. But all you have to do is, my friend Aubrey de Grey, the great uh, proponent of radical life extension, says, all you have to do is live long enough to live forever, which means as long as your average life expectancy is going up by at least 13 months, for every 12 months that passes, as we have incremental improvements in healthcare, in a diet, in you name it, uh, you'll live forever, which means people say, oh yeah, I'm gonna be dead before it's a problem in the 21st century, let alone in the year 3000, where we have to determine what millennium it is. Eh, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Some of us may well be around to deal with us. Some of the programmers who dealt with it 20 years ago may also be dealing with it in the year 3000. I didn't realize we had Aubrey in, in common. Uh, I had a pint with him at the Burden Baby. What a character, isn't he? Yeah, I he, mean, he's something else. You know, we, uh, he is like so many of us. He has an absolute passion and a fervent belief. And yours about Y2K turned out to be dead right. 
His, we're all hoping he turns out to be dead right, that those of us of his generation, baby boomers, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is your generation and mine as well, that the problem of whipping senescence and ultimately death will occur in our lifetimes. I don't think there's a bioscientist in the world who doesn't think that there are tractable problems in biology at some point a life form that can live forever is doable there's nothing mystical uh, uh there's no requirement that creatures die it's just a question of whether it'll happen in our lifetime our children's lifetime or our grandchildren's lifetime mm -hmm. you watch the media's response to y2k what did that response tell you about how society understands computers specifically and technology in general it was infuriating uh after january 1st 2000 well, let's talk about that part of it first okay it was because they said it didn't look nothing happened like what a, this is a hoax or this is a much ado about nothing or this was the self-engrandizing efforts of a few people or what bull that was to say that what it was so you know it, I think of the Wizard of Oz, the movie, and where, you know, Toto the dog pulls behind the drapery that's hiding the man who is operating the Wizard of Oz head that Dorothy is talking to. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. What most people don't understand is computers do not exist in isolation for every computer that's on a person's desk at home or at their workplace there are it professionals and systems designers galore standing in their profusion behind that machine and if you see no error it doesn't mean that there was no error it means that with great effort great forethought great expenditure we succeeded in averting a disaster. And so instead of everybody saying as they should have, whew, we dodged a potentially civilization derailing bullet. They said, ah, oh, it was nothing after all. Unbelievably short-sighted and stupid commentary <laughs> leading up to that, uh, following that event. Now in leading up to that event, again, a complete lack of understanding of people saying, because it's always in the media, in their DNA, that you have to have opposing points of view, which is why we still have debates about climate change or whether or not Trump's uh, ridiculous uh, regimen will save you from COVID-19, because the media feels obligated not to bring on 99 experts who agree and one expert who disagrees, if that's the proportion of opinionality amongst the expert community. But if there are 99 who agree and one who disagrees, to bring on one who agrees and one who disagrees. So we had to listen to idiots who were saying, it's no big deal, it's no problem, nothing will happen, who were given a platform vastly disproportionate to their expertise or to their actual representation amongst the IT community. You galvanized workers worldwide who are just like any other workers. I mean, I love IT guys, 
But just like everybody else, they want to call it a day at five o'clock and go home to their spouse and their kids and their dog and their favorite TV show. And instead, they burned the midnight oil, not for days, not for weeks, not for months, but for years, preparing for that rollover event. And what's astonishing is that they succeeded in all but a vanishingly small number of cases in eradicating the bug before it took its toll. You've answered the next question. You know, in the end, we, we solved it. And the, the solved is in quotes because what we, we didn't really solve it. We kicked it down the road. Uh, we didn't really solve Y2K. And we had uh, hard evidence of that in 2020. But you were obviously surprised that we, we managed to do it. Where did the surprise come from? Didn't you trust us? I, I trust everybody to do their level best. That said, my first novel, which came out in 1990 and was expanded from a shorter uh, version, a novelette version that came out in 1988, was called Golden Fleece. And it was, it came to be because in the 80s, as you remember, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, and he was pushing something technically known as the Strategic Defense Initiative with people like Edward Teller, uh, as his advisors, but popularly known as Star Wars, the missile defense system. Mm -hmm. And I went to a lecture at the University of Toronto where a former member of the, uh, of the U.S. military was going around saying, this can't work. Here's why it can't work. For it to work, for us to be able to prevent nuclear annihilation at the hands of a first strike by the Soviet Union, this untested system, and there's no way to test it in actuality, except when ICBMs are coming over the North Pole straight at us from the Soviet Union, or weapons coming down from orbit straight at us, has to work flawlessly. If you have a 5% failure rate, you've still lost Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, New York City, Kansas. You've poisoned the food supply. You've kicked up a nuclear winter. Not only is the United States wrecked, but soon enough, the whole planet is wrecked. It, theoretically, at the basis of how computer architectures work, they're flawed. And there will always be unintended bugs. Everybody has their goal. Everybody going into write software has the goal of it compiling and running flawlessly the first time. Have you ever seen it happen in your life for anything more than a five-line basic program? No, it doesn't happen. So when it did essentially happen, when you guys, when you, Peter DeYager, and those who were galvanized by what you had written, undertook to eliminate two the 99th percentile, this bug, or as you say, kick it down the road, so at least it wouldn't bite us on January 1st, 2000, and you succeeded at that level. You betcha I was surprised. Yeah. It was a Herculean effort, and it could have just as easily, if a few people had cut corners or booked off early or thrown up their hands, or as we see all the time in science these days, falsified data because it's easier just to say you've done a test, an experiment, than to actually do the experiment, we would have been screwed. So yeah, I was not just surprised. The key here is very, very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, the, the, the key thing that worked in our favor is that we came along with this idea called triage. 
And it's obviously from the medical industry. I, I force-fed it into the, the discussion. And the idea was identify your mission-critical stuff, the stuff that, if it fails, would totally wreck your organization, and focus all of your attention on those. And that's what they did. I mean, there were a couple of organizations who simply did not believe that this thing was real. And their analysts and programmers stopped trying to convince them and persuade them and said, okay, give us a couple of days and we'll do a test. And what they do is they identify a mission-critical system. They have an understanding of it. And they're obviously going to choose the ones that are going to cause the most damage if they fail. And they go in and they do the test. And what happened with some of them is that some in the order of hundreds of thousands of errors would occur in the first five minutes of processing. And then the system would come to a grinding halt. And it's this thing about computers is that they work so fast that when an error occurs, you're not in control. It's going to do what it does. And if that means polluting the entire financial database of a bank, that's what it's going to do. And we did this in test mode. And then we took the results to senior management. And then senior management simply took out a checkbook and said, fill in whatever number you need. And by the way, here's another set of blank ones. And if you need to do that, do that as well. Because if that were to happen on January the 1st, we're not in business anymore. And that's what it boiled down to. Exactly. You and I probably also have Ray Kurzweil in common yes. as an acquaintance. Yep. And Ray, of course, has spent 20 years plus now telling us the singularity is near. Like so many technological predictions, it's always 20 years in the future. The Hold curing that of cancer. The... Hold that thought, because we're going to come right. back to that one. Okay, good, good, good. Because okay. I have a, yeah. All right. I know you're oh, under a timeline, too. Oh, we, we've got half an hour almost okay. still. What could Y2K teach us? And I'm phrasing it that way because, well, you know why. What could it teach us? Well, what you just said, let's go right back to Ray here, because he's been saying for 28 years now or more that very soon there will be a technological singularity, which is a cascade event where suddenly we get a machine that's slightly brighter than us or software that's slightly brighter than us, making one that's slightly brighter than it, slightly brighter than that. And suddenly, in this whoosh, we will have a world where we're left multiple orders of magnitude behind by this endless rush of one AI perfectly engendering an even better AI until we're left in the dust. That requires the exact sort of perfect cascade of everything going right that every computer programmer hopes for, even if it's an emergent behaviorist in the case of the singularity. And instead, almost certainly, there'll be two or three of these generations and then it'll crash horribly because there's some unforeseen uh, difficulty that prevents this perfect constant bootstrapping in the classical sense of pulling yourself up by uh, by your bootstraps, which is where we get the word booting or bootstrapping from in a computer. But in the classical sense of uh, one machine being able to pull itself up to a higher level and another and another and another, that requires a perfect succession of hardware working flawlessly. And what Y2K taught us overwhelmingly is that in most circumstances, it won't. And if you 
turn a blind eye as the bankers were happy to do originally in the analogy you gave a few moments ago, you're doomed. You have to be shown that cascade failures to the point of halt, halt. The system has stopped. It cannot function anymore. It can't reboot. It's dead in the water. Somebody has to intervene. It's almost Gödel's incompleteness theorem. No computer system is complete unto itself. It always requires at some point an operator outside of the system who can hit control alt delete or unplug the damn thing or load a new version of the operating system or something to break the logjam that's resulted in either an infinite loop or just a dead halt. Ted Nelson's word that he coined back in the early 1970s was uh, intertwingled. Everything is intertwingled. And that has stuck with me right from the very, very beginning. One of the things I've mentioned, I got into Y2K long, long before I even saw two-digit years. It was uh, James Burke's Connections in the very first episode about the great blackout of the Eastern Seaboard, where a single fuse, a single switch at the Sir Adam Beck power station in Niagara Falls went on the fritz, did exactly what we wanted it to do. It shut it down. It's what we wanted. But we didn't understand the secondary consequences of that and the ripple effect of one breaker after another uh, rippling across the eastern seaboard put us all out of power for a couple of, well, not a couple of days, but a fair bit of time. Absolutely. I'm just old enough to remember it. That was, was it 65, I seem to recall? Um, yeah. Uh, that I was vintage. in Canada at the time. I was still oh, in you, Africa. You, you bought, yeah, but it was absolutely, you know, you, we, all of us who use any technology, come to rely on it and just ignore it as long as it's working and then are stunned when it ceases to work, when you can't make a phone call, when the light won't turn on in your room, when your oven won't heat up, whatever it is, you suddenly become enormously aware of how dependent, intertwingling, did you say? Intertwining. Uh, wonderful word. How, in, how all of this stuff is a web, not a worldwide web in, in the Tim Berners-Lee sense, but a reticulum of interdependencies and that it is very, very easy for one thing to bring the whole con conflagration down, the whole contraption down. That leads into the, the second one. And the, the, my next statement is, but here's a statement. We have no need of the matrix. We live in a world that's already a virtual reality, as in it's the world we live in is not the world that's out there. It's, and we don't understand how it works anymore. Thoughts? I think that's very true. I mean, we're talking at the lowest level here. We're not saying the simulation hypothesis that we actually already are in some computer virtual yes. reality, but our view of the world is so constrained by right now, mostly still flat screens, mostly still two dimensional video, mostly still our bubbles of information uh, selectivity. You only see the politics you want to see. You only see the sorts of people who share your interests. You don't see, and that's why we're taken aback when suddenly something like 
the current Black Lives Matter protests, and it's been going on, you know, you can go back to the days of slavery in the United States to say, hey, there needed to be a reckoning on this. But how it seemed to, to a lot of benighted observers who were simply playing Fortnite on their computer or watching YouTube videos to come out of nowhere because they had no idea how poised we were for the world was waiting for that indisputable views to be let. Not a case where there was any ambiguity where you could say, well, we're not sure whether the cop acted appropriately or not. Here's a cop with his knee on a guy's neck who is saying, I can't breathe, which is short form for, I can't breathe. And if you continue to make it impossible for me to breathe, I will die because of you. Yeah. And we got that video. It came, unfortunately, for the world at a time where we were also dealing with a pandemic, but it came when it came. And it took most policymakers, most corporations, and most citizenry by surprise because they're living in their VR bubble that says, everything is just fine. My Facebook friends are all happy and content. My Twitter feed shows me a world, a subset, a tiny smidgen of, of the whole messy reality that's out there that conforms to what I want the world to be instead of what the world really is. There's a term from chemistry that I think is absolutely applicable to this. We've been living in a super saturated situation for a long, long time. Absolutely. And, and we just waited for the right crystal to, to tip it over. That's right. The seed for the crystal and then you get that beautiful crystal growing around it. And it could have happened at any point, and this is when it happened. We are at a moment of societal change. And the one thing that I have been gratified to learn in really in this century, or maybe in the last 30 years, this 21st century, humanity can change on a dime. The way we finally came to grips with and indeed embraced LGBTQ rights after centuries, if not millennia, of stupid prejudice and vilification of perfectly natural, normal, healthy people. And then suddenly, one after another, you know, I've read, um, or I'm reading as, as we speak, actually, um, Shelby Foote's The uh, Civil War, his gigantic magisterial history of the American Civil War. And it talks about how the first state, then the second, then the second succeeded from the Union, boom, 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 in a rapid fire succession that nobody was prepared for or expected to happen. But on a positive side, not that, I mean, succeeding, actually, if you want to be racist, go form your own country. I actually don't necessarily think that was a, uh, uh, a bad thing, but that, that's another discussion. But on a positive side, one jurisdiction, then another, then another, then boom, 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 to very rapidly when the top courts in countries all over the world said, yeah, of course. I mean, what's the issue here? Absolutely. These people can get married. They can have adopt children. They can raise children. They can leave their property to their spouse. They can, of course, of course, of course. But it happened in terms of the sweep of history on a dime. And the same thing is happening right now, finally, 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 with a recognition that people of color have been humongously unfairly treated. And the, it's not just that 
Society is changing. People who were virulent racists in the 1960s are repenting in the 2020s saying, I didn't know any better. That was what my daddy told me. My mom told me. I didn't know. I never met a black person or a gay person or uh, who knew. And I'm so, 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 so sorry. I've learned so much. Human malleability is wonderful. But when we live in that virtual reality bubble, we're in a kind of stasis. The only input we get is the input that reinforces our personal status quo. We learn when we are exposed to new things. And one thing that computers and technology and all of that does is it exposes us to the entire world. I grew up in South Africa and I did not see the moon landing. I watched it on a radio. And the reason we didn't have television there was that they understood what television would do to South Africa. Television opened up the world. And as long as apartheid was going on, you couldn't allow, uh, guess who's coming to dinner on your TV in the home. And the only way to stop it would be to stop TV. Rob, I know that you're involved with the Lifeboat Foundation. Uh, What I'd like you, what I didn't know is that you chose a really interesting section of the Lifeboat Foundation to be a part of. You didn't get into technology. You didn't get into computers, which is where I looked for you first. You got into the ethics board. So tell That's me correct. about Lifeboat Foundation and what's so, it about. And then the lifeboat, why yeah. you did ethics. The Lifeboat Foundation is an organization, a nonprofit uh kind of think tanky advocacy organization. Their slogan is safeguarding humanity. And by safeguarding, they mean that we should have a lifeboat. In their particular conception of that, it means what your mother told you or your grandmother, don't put all your eggs in one basket. There should be people on the moon, in orbit, on Mars, en route to the moons of Jupiter, and sooner or later on the way to the other other stars because This is a fragile place where we are right now. Until we have that ability to actually make those lifeboats, we have a moral obligation to make sure we don't sink the one ship we're all aboard right now. And so I was approached by uh, the Lifeboat Foundation and asked if I wanted to serve on some of their boards. And when they solicit you, they say, oh, we've got this Nobel laureate. We've got that PhD, and we've got this astronaut. And I thought, well, that's true. There are a whole bunch of people who are really expert in various fields. For instance, one of the areas that we have to worry about is runaway nanotechnology. Well, there are experts on that. One of the areas we have to worry about is, uh, uh, you know, bioweapons. There are people who've got PhDs in that. One of the areas, but what about the ethical considerations? What about smart automobiles that will have to decide who lives and who dies, or whether it's prudent to turn over our planetary defenses to computers rather than having humans intervening, whether all these sort of ethical issues. And I thought, I may not have a PhD in ethics, but I, at this stage in my career, my first publication was 40 years ago. I have a whole career as a science fiction writer of thinking about the moral and ethical ramifications of science and technology. And so I felt that I actually had, and my colleagues, not just me, 
where science fiction writers and have taken their craft seriously have world-class level of expertise in the ethics of human survival and science and technology. And that that was where I could best make a positive contribution to the Lifeboat Foundation. And I've done a lot of good things with them, but I have to say one of the best things I did was to give our Vanguard Award to somebody who, uh, to recommend, I didn't get to give it, but I recommended to the board, the board vote approved, blah, 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 to somebody who saved the world from technological disaster and often didn't get the credit that person deserved. And that person was, what was his name now? Oh yeah, Peter de Jager, who warned the world about Y2K. And I said, look, on the 10th anniversary of Y2K, so we gave you the award, 2009, on the 10th anniversary of that, uh, 1999, 2000 transition, I said, there's one person who showed that there are technological threats and through concerted effort, openness, not keeping them government secrets, openness about them, that we can avert disasters, Peter Diager And Lifeboat as a group, and me in particular, is the one who recommended you for that award first with others, of course, chiming in and saying, oh yeah, perfect choice, uh, have enormous pride in the fact that we were able to be amongst the many laurels that you have earned for your work. Oh, thanks, Guy. I really appreciate it. Rob, one more thing before we leave Y2K entirely. Right now, we're dealing with COVID, and it's there's no comparison between the two things. You know, COVID is larger and nastier than Y2K even could have been. But the media response how the media is dealing with these two things, at least to me, they it feels similar. What's your take on media and public response to the threat of COVID and the threat of Y2K? In so many circumstances, and Y2K and COVID are two classic examples, we as a society as shaped by our media, has chosen to discount expertise, to say that my opinion as a regular Joe about how serious a pandemic might be is every bit as good as Anthony Fauci's opinion as the director of infectious diseases for the uh, Center for Disease, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, that my expertise as a guy who uh, I know how to upload a video to YouTube and you should see how that epic burn I gave to somebody on Twitter last week makes me equally profoundly expert in matters of information technology. So I do see the absolute parallels and we moved from every day having one sober assessment, usually the 6.30 national news or the morning or evening newspaper, one sober assessment a day of the previous day's events to having a 24-hour news cycle. And how did they make the 24-hour news cycle work? By studying what dramatists like me do, novelists, which means every story has to be about conflict. Every story has to have countervailing opinions and multiple points of view and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. There's got to be a good guy and a bad guy instead of just a sober 
assessment saying, as Walter Cronkite would, well, that's the way it was. The world today is facing a pandemic, and only by coming together will we manage to stave it off. Right? We don't have that. No. We have, here's a guy, a clown, who has a grade eight education saying, nobody will tell me that I have to wear a mask. And that guy gets as much time in the media as an infectious disease specialist. It is galling. Time after time in Y2K interviews, I would often get asked, uh, okay, Mr. Diago, we've spoken to you. Um, who would you recommend to speak about the opposing view? And my response would be, first off, there is no opposing view. Uh, code crashes when you give it zero, zero. And if you want to find someone with that, it's not my job to give you the opposing view. So you go off and find the, the nut bar who doesn't believe that uh, this is an issue. It's not my job to do your balancing, quote unquote. Absolutely. When they do an astronomy story, you're not obligated to say, by the way, you should check with an astrologer too. <laughs> <laughs> A chiropractic astrologer. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. It is always rude if you do an interview with someone who's a writer and they have a new book out without giving them the opportunity to tell us about your new book. I know it's out because I have it, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. What's it about, guy? The Oppenheimer alternative. So the Manhattan Project was the greatest conclave of physics geniuses ever assembled. They had one goal to defeat Adolf Hitler, and they had an unlimited budget to do it. In the end, they spent $2 billion, $1945, to do it, except Hitler did it with a penny bullet to his head, defeated himself, shot himself in a bunker, and the Manhattan Project, which was a righteous effort to put an end to Nazism, became rudderless and was continued through the momentum of scientists who wanted to nonetheless complete their work and a U.S. military who wanted to dictate to Stalin and post-war uh, world who was going to set the agenda after World War II. There would be one superpower. Harry Truman believed only the United States would ever have the atomic bomb. So Oppenheimer at the Trinity test 75 years ago famously said, now I am become death. The destroyer of worlds, never got his chance at redemption. The Oppenheimer alternative is an alternate history or secret history that allows those scientists who had moral qualms and misgivings to get a second kick at the can, a chance to stay together after the war and save Earth from a natural disaster. And if they succeed, in their redemption to be able to say, now we have become life, the saviors of our world. That's the Oppenheimer alternative in a nutshell. Ah, that's brilliant, Guy. I got to get to it. Uh, mea culpa for not getting to it before this. We started speaking about dinosaurs and we ended speaking about an attack or some major disaster that Oppenheimer took care of. Any closing thoughts? We live in a world of science and technology. And it is very much in vogue now to say, but let's make room at the table for every belief system. Science and technology is the only self-correcting belief system that constantly holds itself up to revision and falsifiability. 
Karl Popper said it. If you can't prove it wrong, it's not science. And I think we have made a huge societal mistake to elevate all sorts of alternative, whether it's alternative medicine or traditional beliefs to or religious systems to have the same stature in our public discourse as rational thought, testable hypotheses, and actual empirical evidence. Only science will let us survive in a scientific future. And the science fiction makes it easy to swallow. Absolutely. My job is to sugarcoat the difficult lesson in a way that you will then not even realize you've taken your medicine. Super. Rob, thank you very, very much for making the time to do this. I know how busy you are, besides which you have another book to write, that I'm sure you're going to get to it as soon as your Kobo problems are fixed. <laughs> Absolutely, I will. Thank you so much, Peter. You're quite welcome. Folks, this has been a rollicking, rolling discussion with Robert Sawyer. I knew that it would go this way. Uh, I was looking forward to this for a long, long time. Robert Sawyer, Huger, a Nebula Award-winning science fiction writer and someone who's been on my bookshelf for a long, long time. This has been one of the interviews for Y2K and Autobiography podcast, and I have no idea who's going to follow Rob because it's going to be very, very difficult to do. If you want to get a hold of me, you can get me at pdauger at technobility.com and uh, just spread the word about the podcast. Really appreciate that. And be good, be safe, wash your hands, and we're going to get through all of this. Take care, guys. Bye.